Shirt's on. Mic's on. No, no more, more dick, dick jokes. jokes. Okay, so thank you for joining us for episode three. Today we are discussing Where the Crawdads Sing, as promised. And this one's a little bit funny. I think we told you in the last one because we both uh, listened to the audiobook before we watched the movie. Uh, I think we started the audiobook after the movie had already been released, so we knew that there was a movie. Um, I don't know why Whitney started reading it, but at a certain point she calls me and she's like, Hey, have you read Where the Crawdads Sing? I said, No, but I actually bought it. It's in my Audible queue, and uh, I have not read it. Thank God for Audible. Yeah, thank God for Audible. Um, and she's like, you have to read this book. And there was no discussion about the movie or whatever. And so I started reading and I was, or listening, um, and uh, and I started, and it was, what was initially striking to me <clears throat> was that the, the writing's very good and very descriptive and very... Um, I don't know, unique maybe, and just the way that like you can tell that that the she has this big love for for this place. She has this big love for the marsh, and that's what drew me in first. And then uh, you start to get to know everybody and and get to know this uh, this tension that this girl lives. So a quick summary. I was just gonna say, hopefully. You have seen the movie at least. Right. Because this is one of those ones that's you really don't want spoiled. And we're going to spoil the hell out of it. As we do. So, quick summary. Yeah. Uh, is that it's this girl, uh, Kaya Clark, uh, Catherine Danielle Clark. Catherine or Kathleen? Catherine. Catherine Danielle Clark. Um, is a, she's the youngest of many kids who lives in a shack in the marsh outside of a very small town in North Carolina. And very early on, uh, her mom leaves. Her dad's super abusive. He's an alcoholic. He's, uh, been in the, you know, he was in the army at a certain point. He got discharged. He was off the disability. And that's like that little meager amount of income is what keeps his family alive. And then at a certain point, mom leaves. And then one by one, the kids all leave, and her next brother up is uh, the one she's closest to, and he leaves last, and it's the most devastating. And then her dad is kind of in and out, uh, and he's this sort of like terror figure. And then at a certain point, he leaves too, and then she uh, strikes up a friendship with, ends up uh, learning to read from, and sort of grows up with and falls in love with Tate, who is a friend of her brother's, and is a local boy who lives in Barkley Cove, and... Uh, and then he leaves for college and leaves her too. And then she uh, strikes up sort of a relationship with the fancy quarterback in town who's in it for a conquest and then maybe is interested actually and who knows. And, and they sort of have this very like uh, sad romance, I think. And then um, he ends up marrying some other girl in town and she's left alone again, and then at a certain point he dies. So in the book, there's this back and forth between uh, you're sort of getting to know Kaya, and then we flash forward to a murder trial that's happening, or a, a death that happens in Barkley Cove, and it's Chase Andrews, and you're going back and forth, back and forth, and you're sort of like growing up with her, and then also working the way through the case of them identifying who he is, identifying sort of what happened, coming up with a suspect list, realizing that maybe Kaya Clark is... Uh, is a suspect arresting her, putting her on trial. And so you're going back and forth, back and forth, and you don't know anything about how... You don't know if it's true. 
right? You don't know if, if she killed him, if, if she didn't. And then uh, at the end, uh, she's acquitted of that murder. She goes back to live in the swamp. She ends up getting back with Tate. They live together and they die. They live the rest of their lives together in the, in the marsh. Sorry, marsh, not swamp. And, uh, and then at the end, uh, after she's dead, uh, they discover, Tate discovers that, in fact, she did kill Chase Andrews. Well, we were just going to spoil it right off the bat. <laughs> uh, Carrie doesn't like to give summaries like you would read on the back of the book that's like, and read for the rest. Here she's like, let me just short version the entire movie for you. So, um, like I said, I really wanted to sneak that warning in there about, I hope you watched it. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So, that being said. <laughs> the most incredible part in, in reading this book or listening to it was that uh, she called me right at this part she's gonna tell you about. And, and this was the moment in which she said, you have to read this book. And it has to do with the father, which is like kind of, from the movie, seems like an unlikely, um, an unlikely person to, to tug at your heart and say, oh my gosh, I want my friend to read this. Yeah, so I was listening to the book and I was driving um, to South Florida and it reached this point. So like Carrie said, the father is kind of this like terror of a figure. Um, and he's very, he's an alcoholic, he's abusive, he's there and then he's not. And even when he is there, he's not present. Um, and the whole family struggles with that. You know, like the book opens with the mom leaving because she can't take it anymore. Um, and this is something that continues to come through Kaya's life as she remembers her mom walking away in her alligator boots. And Kaya, like, resents her father for driving away everyone in her life. But something really interesting happens at a certain point. So it's just Kaya left as a little girl and her father. And he was he goes off and he drinks and does whatever during the day. And he might come back that night. He might not. At one point, he's gone for a longer stint, and Kaya, um, she looks at his boat, and she really wants to use this, because this is like a, a way to get out into the marsh further, right? And so she starts to use it, she gets lost, she worries about running out of gas, and then he'll know that she used the boat, all of these things. She realizes how great the boat is. During that, she actually meets Tate, who like leads her back to the marsh. So she finds, she recognizes some sort of safety in this stranger immediately. But she wants to be able to continue to use the boat and she doesn't want to have to sneak around. So her whole idea is that she wants to, she says, I'll like scrub the boat, you know, I'll clean it up. And she uses like dirt and elbow grease to get this boat brand spanking new. She fills it with gas and she cleans the whole house and she prepares dinner and her dad comes home. And this part is the part where I called Carrie or texted her like, have you seen this or read this? Um, because this was incredible to me. And so we said that we were going to talk about the movie, but I can't talk about the movie without talking about the book because this part is done so beautifully in the book. Um, and I think that the movie really squished it. <laughs> um, so she talks about cleaning the house and making dinner. They're sitting down to dinner and they're eating and you can see that there's something that they both recognize like a need for this in this moment. And all of a sudden she realizes like she can't ask to use the boat. 
She says, but now after thinking about it, she was worried that if she asked to use the boat, he would think she cooked and cleaned only for a favor, which is how it started out, but now it seems somehow different. She likes sitting down and eating like a family. Her need to talk to somebody felt urgent. She didn't mention using the boat by herself. Instead, asked, can I go out fishing with you sometime? He laughed hard, but it was kind. The first time he laughed since Ma and others left. So you want to go fishing. And then they start going fishing together, right? He takes her out fishing. He teaches her all these things. I mean, he asks her when she, he says, you want to go fishing? He's like, you're, but you're a girl. <laughs> and she says she really wants to. And he says, okay, well, maybe you can sometime. And the next day, he's got the boat ready. And he's yelling at her like, come on, let's go. And they start going fishing together. And then there's this beautiful moment when he, she comes home and he's frying fish. And he's making dinner for the both of them. It's not just about his survival needs, because a lot of the times it was. But this time he's frying fish and making dinner for both of them. And he thuds this uh, knapsack from his time in World War II down on the table. And it startles her. And he kind of does this in his own gruff way, right? Where he says, oh, I thought you could use this for all the stuff you collect, all your shells and feathers and things. And he's kind of embarrassed about it. And he walks out the door. And she's left standing there holding it. And like, I just like thought this was so beautiful that it wasn't just like, oh, here's this girl. She's taking an interest in me. She's feeding me. She's taking care of me. So I guess she's a good kid. But it's like he takes an interest in her. So what I thought was interesting was that it was like not just Kaya's need for a father, but also her dad's need for somebody else, um, which I think that this book gets so well over and over and over again it does such a good job of understanding that which is why i was disappointed when i watched the movie um, because the movie has this whole scene it cuts short the scene eating with her dad it doesn't have the whole like drama of do i ask for the boat and then when he gives her the knapsack in the movie she's hanging laundry on the line and he comes up and he's like oh i had this and you can tell he's kind of embarrassed and he's trying to figure out how to like tell her what it is and what it's for and the mailman shows up and she's like, oh, the mail's here. And she runs away and he's left standing there holding in his hands. And he finishes the sentence like to himself. Like she has run off to go get this letter. And he's like, I thought it was for you could use it for your nests and birds and stuff. And so it's like the movie takes this as an excuse to make Kaya be able, like the difference between the book and the movie that I thought was the book has a subtle need for somebody else in everyone's lives. And the movie is about Kaya making, making Kaya self-sufficient. Even in her love for Tate, she's self-sufficient. Even in her relationship with Chase Andrews and Jumpin' and Mabel and all these things, she's self-sufficient. And I thought that was so disappointing. A lot of people tell me like, oh, they thought the movie was really good because it gets the details right. And it is. But the beautiful thing that I loved about the book was totally absent from the movie. In fact, it was almost opposite. I thought, I kept reading this book, and one of the reasons I really like this author, um, and Carrie, you're just gonna have to jump in because I could like teach a whole class right Perfect. now, so. I'm so happy right now. <laughs> um, as I like listen to the way that she writes about Kaya and her dad, and I couldn't help but think about Steinbeck. Mm, our boy. Yeah, Steinbeck is my favorite author. And I thought about the way Kaya looks at her dad, right? 
because it made me think of her dad as the character Cyrus from East of Eden, who is a very similar, he's an alcoholic, he's there, but he's not present. He has this tension with his children of like loving them, but all his love is like a rough, is a tough love form of love, you know? Cyrus is the ultimate patriarch of East of Eden. He's cold. He has a lot of rules. He's kind of scary. Occasionally loving, but usually reserved in the form of tough love. So there's this part where it talks about like Adam growing up and looking at his father. And it says, when a child first catches adults out, when it first walks into his grave little head that adults do not have divine intelligence, that their judgments are not always wise, their thinking true, their sentences just, his world falls into a panic desolation. The gods are fallen and all safety gone. And there's one thing, one sure thing about the fall of gods. They do not fall a little. They crash and shatter or sink deeply into green muck. It is a tedious job to build them up again. They never quite shine, and the child's world is never quite whole again. It is an aching kind of growing. And Kaya never had her father on this pedestal that she had to watch her father come down from into the thick green sludge that never quite cleans off. However, she still needs him. And not in the way that children need their fathers for survival. She's learning that on her own, but in a way that person needs somebody. Which made me think of another Steinbeck quote <laughs> um, from Of Mice and Men. And this is the part where, Lenny, I'm not going to give too much summary on this because I don't want to give so much, but Lenny, one of the characters, walks into the room of Crooks, who is the black stable boy who's been outcasted because of his race. And so he's on his own all the time, but he's got his books. And so he's talking to Lenny and he says this thing about like how everybody needs somebody. He says, a guy needs somebody to be near him. Books ain't no good. A guy goes nuts if he ain't got nobody. Don't make no difference who the guy is as long as he's with you. I'll tell you, he cried. I'll tell you, a guy gets too lonely and he gets sick. Then he goes on talking to Lenny. They do a little back and forth and stuff. And then he says, a guy sits out alone here at night, maybe reading books or thinking or stuff like that. And sometimes he gets to thinking and he got nothing to tell him what's so and what ain't so. Maybe if he sees something, he don't know whether it's right or not. He can't turn to some other guy and ask him if he sees it too. He can't tell. He's got nothing to measure by. And I think, like I said, like I think this book... Delia Owens totally gets what Steinbeck's get, Steinbeck gets, is that you need somebody else. In the, in the movie, there's this, which she's introducing in the beginning when the camera's rolling through the marshes and, and she's talking about a marsh isn't a swamp and uh, a marsh, you know, grass grows out of the water and there's light everywhere. And then she says, but in the marsh, there are some swamps. And to a swamp, death isn't a foreign thing, right? And it, it's certainly not moral, and it's certainly not sin, right? The death, like death, exists inside this place of light and growth, and it all it all exists together. And there's no wrong or right; it just is. And this sets up sort of perfectly um, the the trouble with Chase Andrews, right? Is that for the reason that Kaya can sit there in the trial and not be too worried about. She says at one point, I can't do, I can't do prison time. I'm not going to plea bargain. I'm, I'm not going to admit my guilt and they'll just decide, right? One way or the other. And the reason that she can do this kind of 
coldly if you want is because she doesn't have anything to measure by. She doesn't have this in the movie. There's this like real emphasis on sort of reducing things to the way that nature does it. She at the dinner table with the editor, she's talking about the fireflies and they have two light signals, you know, one to attract and one to, one to lure somebody in and then eat him. Right. And, and she says that nature doesn't have this problem of, you know, right and wrong, good and bad. And it's not a problem. It's like, I'm not so hung up on the morals of a thing, right? It's just that this, she says at a certain point at the end, you know, she's, you're, she's talking still and uh, Tate is going through her books after she's died. And you can hear her saying that sometime a prey has to kill the predator in order to survive, right? It sort of squishes everything down into this surviving or not surviving and what Kirks is talking about in Of Mice and Men is that, but life is more than surviving, right? If you're sitting out here and you're thinking you're, and you're, all this stuff is coming through, you don't know what's so and what's not so. You need someone else to measure by because you need someone else, right? It's an urge. When she sat there with her father at the dinner table, it became this urgent need. And the other thing I love about this book that the, the movie, I think, tries to capture is the way that this author... Um, describes feelings, right? Mm-hmm. In the in the movie, there's this moment in which she runs across Tate in the marsh, and he and he leads her home. But she says that the the tightness in my chest re- like loosened a little bit, mm-hmm. right? That the way the way that the author describes all these things that are happening inside Kaya, the, the loneliness was so vast you could get lost, mm-hmm. right? These these kinds of things that are so that touch so much my experience of, of, of all the things that like all the things that happen to you being human that, and, and they happen to you in, in this need for another person. And the, the movie I think is trying to do this thing, like what it was saying that of, of emphasizing that she is totally self-sufficient, but in fact, the emphasis is the other, it's the opposite. Right. And the dad in the movie keeps saying a thing that I don't think he ever says in the book. You can't trust no one. You like everything's dangerous. The world's a dangerous place. Like you get that sense from him that this is how he lives and this is the this is the position he's taken in the world. But in the book, I don't think he ever explicitly says these things. And she certainly doesn't learn them from him. She learns them from herself. She learns them from being from being hurt and having and then and and having this urgent need to reach out again, but being so afraid to. That's the tension I think I like the most in the book, is that there's something original in her that is that is trying to spread out, that is trying to to reach for another one, but then she has, but then the second after, she has all of these facts of things that have crushed that, like have have made that seem like it's a betrayal. And so she feels the she feels the betrayal. Not so much even of the others, but of her own, like her own desire. She feels betrayed by herself. No? And this is why I I loved this book so much because she really fleshes out and like lives in her in her bones this feeling betrayed by herself. I mean, I think that's the line that made me text you. Was the thing that said her need to talk to somebody felt urgent was the way that she wrote that because I said who talks about this yeah so many authors want to talk about like our culture today wants to be 
they want to write the Bible for self-sufficiency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she writes her need to talk to somebody felt urgent. And it, she doesn't recognize this need until she's getting it. Yeah. Like, it's not like she's out lonely in the marsh and thinks, oh man, I just really want somebody. It's that she's sitting in front of her dad and they're talking and she says this. Like, this is what I long for. Because she had a whole plan. She scrubbed the boat. She made dinner. She did all the things. And she had, like, I just wanted, because for her, the boat is freedom. Her, the boat is, it's a way to, it's a way to go and do and be and, like, be in this place that educates her. Uh, And, and so she has this plan to get to the boat. And she's going to do all these things. But instead, someone someone surprises her. Somebody interrupts the path. Yeah. And instead, she gets the boat and her dad. Yeah. Right? It's this, like, it's this overabundance, more than she asked for, the thing that she actually needs, but she didn't even know she needed it until she started to walk towards the thing that she could see that she needed, and she wanted that thing. Right. She wanted the boat, and so she went and she walked. And then, instead, she has something that she didn't even, she didn't even know she needed until she was exactly getting it. Yeah. And then it's like, oh my gosh, this thing. And I think that's what the movie squishes. Because it in that moment of the, the, at the laundry line, when her dad is giving her this knapsack, and she's, she, she's really moved. She's this little kid, and she's holding it, and she's really moved. But then she hears the male guy, and, and she like can forget this thing. That is the one thing that, that in this book, Kaya does not forget. Kaya's an elephant. She doesn't forget anything. Right? Rude. And, and so... It, that scene at the laundry line is so like inauthentic. I feel like because yes. yeah. she That's doesn't forget anything, right? And there's no way that she could turn away from the knapsack for the mail. She holds everything, everything together. together, right? Because what happens is the mail brings a letter from her mom, right? But she doesn't know that right. at that moment, right? And this is the tragic thing: is the mail brings a letter from her mom. She can't read yet, yeah. so she gives it to her dad. Her dad reads it, and it, the letter, you don't find out till later, is asking for the, for, kids. for the kids. And so it sends the dad on a rampage. He burns all his, the mom's art that she's left behind. Kaya gets, like, goes into distress. The dad gets drunk. He storms out, he leaves, and he doesn't ever come back. Yeah. And time is marked this way through the rest of the book. Like, it's been four years since Dad left. I think it's been ten years since Dad left. Like, when Jody shows back up. It's been ten years since Dad left. All of these things. Yeah. Like, this is an event that hurt. Kaya's not self-sufficient. Right. Yeah, I mean, yes, she is. She has done better for herself than, than ever before. And that yeah. her dad was able to do or anything. But right. her need is not self-sufficient. Right. Um, it's a need. So talking about Dad's... My favorite dad in this book that I really, I think it yeah. would just be horrible to not mention. And he's not really mentioned that much in the movie. It's a little bit. but yeah, He gets one scene and it's all wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, Scupper. Oh. Tate's father. Um, this is a man who has a love for the opera. He listens to opera records with Tate each night after docking the boat while they clean it. Um. So they like go to dinner and he's asking Tate how school's going and Tate says, oh, bi- biology's great, but in English we're learning poetry and that feels silly, right? And Scupper tells him, don't dismiss the poetry. He says, it makes you feel something and there's nothing wrong with a man feeling something. 
And he tells them real men aren't afraid to show emotion, to find beauty in poetry and opera. They should always stand up for women in need. And I don't think that this is just a man written by women for women. Right. Right. Very clear. Right. (laughs) That it's a man who has a sensitive side and he's going to stand up for the woman, blah, blah, blah. But this is a man who understands and appreciates life. He recites a poem that to Tate that his Tate's mother loved. And then Tate goes and reads poetry later. Uh, and he reads this poem by Thomas More, not Sir Thomas More, not St. Thomas More. <laughs> but he reads a poem by Thomas More, actually, that is about a young man who meets his love on the lake and hides her death from the trees, which is a foreshadowing to the ending of Tate's life, like to the end of Kaya's life and Tate's life with her. Um, and this poem makes Tate think of Kaya um, and how the mar- marsh must make her scared and make her feel alone. And it makes him think of his sister. And he says, like, Dad was right. Poetry makes you feel something. And then later, after the trial, Tate's father dies. Um, and he goes to the graveside and he feels awful. Like he spent too much time focusing on Kaya and he missed out. And if he had just been around, maybe he would have noticed his dad was having heart trouble and all of these things. And he wants forgiveness from his dad for this. And he plays his dad's favorite opera record at the graveside. And there's like part of him that knows that his dad would forgive him because of the way that his father lived his life, right? Cries without shame, reads poetry with his heart, feels opera in his soul, and does what is necessary to defend a woman. And it's because of Scupper that Tate learns to love Kaya, right? He doesn't just give himself to Tate in his education. He tells Tate, the importance of paying attention to everything so that when he dies, Tate knows how to really live after his father's death. And I was thinking about this thing that you told me the other day, but that Scupper dying and him standing there and feeling all of this, like I should have paid more attention. I should have, whatever I should have, uh, I want my father's forgiveness, but he realizes this thing that you said that his father would forgive him because of the way he lived. And then he goes and, um, and, and he realizes that, that the way he's loved Kaya and he, and he messed up when he was in college, right? He left her and he thought, because he thought that these two worlds could never touch and he had to choose, but he's always loved Kaya. And the way that he loves Kaya is the way that his father loved him, which was not to make him into anything, but just to pay attention to the things that were happening. How's school? Don't like, don't dismiss the poetry, you know? Um, don't skimp on the poetry. <laughs> uh, and uh, Tate helps Kaya grow up, right? That's the other thing that the movie squishes, I think. That they sort of like rendezvous when she's already... Um, she I is think, up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so they kind of miss this part, whatever. Because what Tate does for Kaya is he, he's not after her. He wants her to... He, he reads that poem, he thinks maybe she's alone in the marsh, but then he starts to pay attention. He says, oh no, she's not, she's not scared, but also she doesn't, she doesn't even know what she has in her hands because she can't, can't get to it all because she can't read. So he teaches her to read so that she can experience more life, not so that she can be civilized or so that she can get out of the marsh or that she can, so that she can be normal, but because she has in her hands all of these things and he wants her to really have them. So he teaches her to read. Which, like, it shows that, like, Tate's understanding of life, of Kaya, of poetry, evolves as he pays attention. Because when he first reads the poem, 
It says, she's gone to the lake of the dismal swamp, where all night long by a firefly, firefly lamp she paddles her white canoe. And her firefly lamp I soon shall see, and her paddle I soon shall hear. Long and loving our life shall be, and I'll hide the maid in the cypress tree when the footstep of death is near. And he thinks she must be so alone in this place by herself. But like you said, as he watches her and he pays attention and he spends time with her, it's like, oh no, she's not alone. Like this is home, right? This is what, this is her education system. And this is where she is herself. And she blends in with this world. And so the poem takes on a new meaning at the ending when Kaya dies in her boat in the lake. Kaya becomes this poem of this woman paddling her white canoe that Tate still refuses to say she is mine. And this is the difference that I was talking or that I was thinking about because I could not wrap my brain around Chase Andrews Mm -mm. because it was just like I he's so confusing in the way that he's very simple. Yeah. (laughs) Very simple. (laughs) But it's not straightforward as to what he wants. And I think that's because he doesn't know. Because... <laughs> Some dog barking. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, this is what I started talking about. The movie diminishes the need for somebody else. The way Kaya needs her father. The way fa- her father needs Kaya. And even Chase, who's the popular, beloved, beloved by the town. Um needs something in this relationship with Kaya. And I don't think that Kaya is simply a conquest to him. I think it starts out this way, um, which is funny that I think you said this word specifically in the beginning because I had it written down. Um, I think he sees somebody who looks at him and sees something inside of him and something inside of him needs that. But Chase doesn't have Scupper. Yeah. Chase doesn't have Scupper to tell him you can cry without shame to feel poetry in your heart, and to have opera in your soul. He doesn't know what to do with that need, and so he suffocates it. Um, he tries to make Kaya his and to own her and he, so that he could never lose the gift of her. And Kaya's father does the same. He abuses the gift of someone in his life until he loses it piece by piece and eventually abandons the last part that is left. Mm-hmm. Like gives up. Her father gives up on this need that, that he has and that he saw... Because in the book also you, you hear about the romance of of he like, you know, he woos their her mom right. who's kind of like a classy lady. And with her alligator boots. Yeah. <laughs> and and he woos but he woos her in, in kind of the same way that Chase Andrews does, by putting up fronts, right? Making himself out to be something that he's not. And then when he brings her home to this shack that is on his family's land, you know, Napier, Clark, or whatever, bought it in 1890. So they have 310 acres of beauty, right? But he brings her home to the shack, and Ma, to her credit, is not upset. She's, uh, what? (laughs) Right? But she stays and she tries to make this place beautiful, right? And this this is what Pa, like, loved and, like, he loved Ma and wanted this thing to be true and then he couldn't sustain it, right? He couldn't sustain himself. He couldn't, he couldn't keep the terrors away. He couldn't, he couldn't. And so he kills it little by little because he couldn't accept to be loved this way, right? By his, by his wife and by his kids. 
And so then at a certain point, he gives up. And this is the same as Chase, right? And and I think that the movie does a very good job of of documenting this aspect of Chase. Yes. Right. I think it, I think that's maybe the only we won't use such extremes. That's a thing that it gets very right is that Chase says over and over again, you know, my dad told me. So this the difference in dads, right? Scupper tells Tate all these things, mm-hmm. and then Chase's dad apparently tells him after he'd had a fight with his mom and after he'd had something to drink, that if your friends really knew you, they wouldn't be your friends. The difference in dads, right? And so that he's so afraid to be known and then Kaya seems to know him and still want him. But he he gives up on that too and marries Pearl. Uh, Yeah, but this like... This giving up on the thing that you see in front of you. And and that that's the other part about this book that was so frustrating because it's so me. Mm. Right? That you see Kaya and you see these hands being held out to her. And then she says, no, I can't because I've been burned before. Mm-hmm. But not necessarily, yes, burned by other hands, but also burned by herself. Burned, she, in, she intuits from... from betting on this big need she has on this big desire she has on this like this impetus in her to reach out to the thing that she needs that seems to have burned her mm-hmm. and so she wants to shut that thing down yeah i was listening to this so you told me to read lesson whatever and i started and then i was i got through most of this book on the island right mm-hmm. so on an island in the Bahamas, not as ex- not as exotic as it sounds. Uh, <laughs> like walking to and from uh, the briefing spaces every day, right? People were like, "You want to ride?" I was like, "No, nah, I've got the I'm, I'm I'm reading a book. Like it's fine." <laughs> but on this like trek back and forth, uh, I was listening to this book and thinking, "Man, that is the dynamic of my life in which I have this." big desire that has met a thing that answers it and that makes it bigger and I can I can read facts in the wrong way and say that that desire burned me Hmm. if I don't have somebody that I can bounce it against and somebody who can say this is so and this isn't so right like if I don't have some help to to sort out what I've lived I can do what Kaya does and I can say nope my desires what burned me. Mm. And that was like, it was so frustrating to listen to her because you're like, no, <laughs> Tate loves you. Like, what are you doing? But how often is this me, no? Like, <laughs> it was, oh man, it was so hard. And then to, and then the other part that I like really, that they, they kind of did in like this one broad stroke in the, in the movie is her her experience of being in jail mm-hmm. right that you have this caged bird yeah right and and all the little ways in which she is feeling caged but also like looking at freedom and and the book seems to put this thing in tension that she's not free because she's in a jail cell but she's not free because for Something, for something more than the jail cell, I think, right? She's not free because she's decided to give up on all of these things, right? She's decided to stop, to stop living, to stop trusting, to stop whatever, because, because she's in a jail cell. And I, yeah, I just, I, it's a super interesting tension that's been set up uh, between like the marsh and town 
the boat and the jail cell, right? All of these things are like pitted against each other. But the crux of the matter is really in this thing that we've identified, but the, because it's the way she marks time, it's the way in which it's the way in which she describes all these feelings that are inside of her, right? That continue to happen in the jail cell or not, right? That the crux of the matter is not where, it's how. And and I think that the that the movie sort of broad strokes over all of it so that you sort of miss that tension and you miss the opportunity to pick that up as the real problem here, right? Because it, it sort of it kind of gives precedence to this uh this trial as so that something could have happened, right? Because <laughs> how often you tell somebody to read this great book and then they do and they're like, I mean, I didn't really get it. Nothing happened, right? And so you, you can't accuse where the crowd had things of having something that didn't happen because there was a whole murder trial, by golly. <laughs> <laughs> Which we're not really even talking about today. <laughs> right, exactly. And that was, we sat down today and we were, and shoot, <laughs> it was like, yeah, I didn't, really have anything to say about the trial. I was like, yeah, well, I mean, not me either. I mean, a little bit kind of, because there's also this like sense of, of was justice served, right? Right. And my brother actually asked me uh, when I told him that I was reading this book and he was like, oh, I saw the movie, it's really good. But he goes, I won't spoil it for you because he doesn't have a podcast where he spoils things. Uh, <laughs> <That> <laughs> he was both. Thing. When you get to the end of the book and you watch the movie, tell me if the endings match because they did this thing that I don't really understand. I don't understand why they did it. And it's the shell necklace, right? Like, uh-huh. so Brian was like, well, in the book, did she kill him? Like, that's, that's what he wanted yeah, to know. Yeah, he finds the shell necklace. Absolutely. And so, but for he, Brian didn't read the, he didn't read the book. So he wanted to know if it was. Oh, if, if the movie was adding a twist. Exactly. Right. If they added this twist at the end, but it didn't. It's, that's very, uh, like that's original to the book. Except. Yes. In the book, he also finds. Her poetry. Which is totally missing from the movie, by the way. Right, he finds that this favorite author of her favorite poetry that she's always quoting, it was her. Yeah. Which I thought was really beautiful because it was like, her life inspired this. Like, everything around her, all the things she saw, moved her to put this into poetry. Which is kind of like the flip side of Tate, of like... That he's watching this happen, and so he understands poetry, right? Like, and she can only put it into poetry because Tate taught her. Yeah. And that's the other part of the movie where she, like, learns to read, and she reads her first sentence, right? And she reads out the comma, which I thought was funny. Uh, and and then she says, I... And he... And I, I when I rewatch this movie, he gets up and he, like, yelps. You know, he's so excited. Like, a girl, Kaya! And then she says, I didn't know words could hold that much. And he says, they don't all hold that much. But the emphasis was weird. Like, <laughs> in the book, I heard yeah, you're picky. You're <laughs> <laughs> <We're> so picky. <laughs> they didn't get the emphasis right in the movie. Uh, possible but thing. It just, it, like, it, it was this, like, weird sticking point because it was like he dismissed. It was almost dismissive of what she meant, right? What she meant was, which is why he was teaching her to read. He was teaching her to read Mm -hmm. because he wanted her to know more of what she already loved. That words hold so much. That words hold so much. That poetry holds so much. Right. And so it, the way that he says it in the movie, and maybe, and I'm hoping that I just got it wrong. 
I hope that this is a me problem, not a movie problem. But he almost seemed dismissive of this thing instead of, don't you know it? Mm. You know? Like, yes, Kaya, they do. And this is why we're doing this. Because in the book, that's so prevalent. Right. No? So it was interesting. I think it is funny to hear different people talk about it and stuff. Um, Everybody wants to know, were you shocked by the ending? You know, that she killed Chase and... Um, Nick's question of like why didn't she tell Tate yeah you know like I I think about all these questions when I finish reading it but it's funny because I like hearing these questions because these aren't my questions about the book because you can take or leave the trial right and so those questions about were you surprised by the ending that she did it or why didn't she tell Tate I think are interesting because you can't just like edit out the trial right right, right. it is a part of the life yeah of everybody involved and the death of some right um, and so, I don't know. What do you think? Like, why do you think she keeps it from Tate? <sighs> that, I've been thinking about this too, because Nick asked the other day. And, and I think that in that you can't edit out the trial, you can't edit this, you can't edit Chase out, you can't, all of these things are part of her. I think that in her, um, I don't know, motive, I guess, to be, to survive, she did this thing. And, and I think she, I think she edits it. Right. No, right? that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I think that she has, because she she boxed up in the in the movie. He, she, the shell necklace is like in the like cut out pages cut out in the pages, right? Yeah. Like the way that I used to hide music when I was a freshman in high school or in uh, college, rather not not high school. High school, I was allowed to have music, not college. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it's it's hidden there. But in the move in the book, it's under the floorboards, right? Right, and it's in her like secret, last secret hiding spot. And I think that that's much more descriptive of of where she's put it right it's under the floorboards yeah right and and it's it's out of sight out of mind it's not a it's not a thing that's important she did it because she was the prey and he was the predator and men always want to have the last punch and she wasn't going to live like that stop period basta and for her everything after that is is life and everything that surrounds that fire tower is Chase Andrews, and that's in the floorboards. But then Tate goes and treats it the same way, right? Right. Like, that this was her decision, and he didn't have a right to tread on it, because he just burns everything. He, including the poetry, he takes the rawhide off the necklace, and he puts the shell back into the sand to blend in with all the others. You know, his life and his relationship, in the same way Kaya didn't want it to, I think the truth of this trial and whatnot couldn't take anything from the relationship with Tate and Kaya, I think is her human desire for it. Yeah. Yeah. Or fear. In the same way that, I mean, this is a book about her preserving herself. Yeah. And I think that because I think we talked about this too, like that Tate comes, Tate asks her to marry him and she says, aren't we already though? Like the geese. And he says, I think I can live with that. Right. Full of affection. Right. Full of affection. But he comes to live in her shack in the woods. Right. In the marsh. Like he, he comes into her life. He is all in. And that's, I mean, the way that he left her a feather in a stump, he didn't hand it to her. And, and the, the relationship begins this way in which he makes the ever so smallest, slightest invitational move into her world. 
and waits for a response. Like approaching an animal in the marsh. Exactly. The way that he decided when he came back, is after he left for the three weeks to do his internship, and then he's coming back for the 4th of July. When he came back, he said that he saw her, and she was moving like an animal in the marsh. And he thought, I, she'll, never, she'll, never be like, she'll never be anything other than a skittish animal. And that's the, the, the thing that he hangs his hat on and why he leaves initially and then has a hard time making it back or whatever. But, but he always treats her like he always knows that this is a possibility, that she'll run away scared. And so he comes this way. And then eventually, you know, the, they really fall in love and, and they really have a relationship and all of the things. But he's always coming into her world, right? And I think that when he finds this thing, he thinks... It's not my, it's not my place, right? It's, this isn't my place. He doesn't try to make it his. He doesn't try to make it his. And this is why, this is why Tate is such Such an incredible character. character. And, and I don't, and I I like that we said this already, so let's say it again. I don't think that he's a man written by women, written by a woman as like the idea, like, I think he really is a man. Yeah. No, like we know men like this. Raised by Scupper. Raised by Scupper. Like a man raised by a man, a man generated by a man. And he has this, um, this like sensitivity to be able to see that this is, this is her world. And she, these are the choices that she made and I can't undo them. So, and then I, I was also thinking that, and this is very clear in the, in the movie. It brings up for me this question of like justice. Was justice done or not? Right. And in the in the case of Chase and the the closing remarks of the of her lawyer, right, in which he goes through like you, I've lived here my whole life and I've heard all the legends and the tall tales about the Marsh Girl. She's got, you know, she's part wolf and she's got eyes that glow and all this stuff, right? And uh, but what we have here is Kaya Clark, right? And so. If, if we convict her, then we're just adding one more tall tale to the legends of the Marsh Girl. And I think he's not wrong, even though she did what she's on trial for doing. Yeah. Right? And so I think that as a penance, these people needed to let her go because they've convicted, they've wrongly convicted her her whole life. And so this time she gets a pass. And it's kind of interesting because I think that justice is handled in the way of the laws of nature. Like Kaya seems to want the world to work anyway. Yeah. Because Chase tries to rape her. Right. And, and no, no one does sense. anything. Right. That's the whole reason right. she goes after him. She's not a lover scorned. She's a prey. This isn't about the fact that he went and got engaged and was engaged the whole time he was dating her and then got married. It's not about being left behind. She's had that happen to her every time. That's what she expects. Yeah. It's that he came after her and attacked her and no one did anything. So she took it into her own hands. Right. Exactly. (laughs) The face that we're making is because we just realized we have not picked something for our next podcast. I'm pretty sure that's what Carrie and I both realized at the same time, actually. It's very funny. (laughs) And I totally read that on your face. Um, So we will announce it. That's a great way to introduce the fact that I have, well, we have an Instagram now. That 
Whitney 100% manages because I don't know how to work Instagram. That's all right. <laughs> Carrie's going to come at you with a sub stack. So. <laughs> that's not going to be me. Um, that we have an Instagram right now. So it is ruined.4.life22. Um, you recognized? Yeah, because ruined for life was taken. Go figure. Yeah. So actually, that's a great thing. I would like to post updates about when our podcast is being released so you can follow that, what it's going to be on. Uh, we're posting like book and music and song or book, music, movie recommendations because there's way too many things out there to try and do a podcast and everything. I think we we're going to do a podcast. We were going to talking about doing one on the Hamlet Oh, oh yeah, playlist. let's do that. <laughs> Here we are deciding live. <laughs> um, so for my class, we my senior English class, uh, we just finished reading Hamlet, and I realized that there was a disconnect between the students reading Hamlet and seeing that Hamlet had something to do with them. And so I built a playlist because music seems to be the bridge that I've discovered that they say, if I can feel this way and Hamlet feels this way, maybe something ham like maybe something about hamlet does correspond with me so i think we talked about doing a podcast based on hamlet and this music uh this playlist which which you could you could put on the instagram no it is on the oh my gosh so i know so if you go to the instagram um in the highlight reels above there's like music we love movies we love and books we love there's only one suggestion under each right now Um, but on the music there's a link to the podcast playlist so you can read the summary of hamlet you can read hamlet if you're feeling ambitious it's a short play it's wonderful i think it's awesome you can watch the movie whatever they're word for word um the mel gibson one's pretty good yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but there's also a link to the playlist so listen to it Look at the lyrics. We would love to talk about it. The other thing about that's great about having the Instagram is you can DM us and ask us questions that we can discuss on the podcast. Like I said, we brought up some questions that we had heard people asking earlier, and we'd love to do that. So you can also fight with us, right? Disagree. Yeah, I'll let you have Carrie for that one. (laughs) (laughs) So interact with us. Um, Message us on the on the Instagram. And ask us questions uh, about either about po- past podcasts that we can reference in our next episodes or about upcoming topics. Like, I have a question about this book. I read this book. I watched this movie. Whatever. Here's my opinion. Here's my question. We'd love to bring it up and make this even richer. Yeah. Read Hamlet. Listen to the playlist because we're going to spoil the hell out of it. As we do. <laughs> <laughs>